Jesus has chosen the disciples. He has brought them down onto the plain and he's healed people and he then again uh, then starts to speak to his disciples. This is called the Sermon on the Plain which has a lot a lot of similarities to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their, their fathers did to the false prophets. The word of the Lord. Well, I have a question for you. Would you rather be poor, hungry, sad, and hated, or rich, well-fed, happy, and popular? Now, you may have to think about this, so I'm going to repeat it a second time as you ruminate. Would you rather be poor, hungry, sad, and hated, or rich, well-fed, happy, and popular? Well, I think the answer is easy, isn't it? And yet we see something in the scriptures that confuse us. Seems that Jesus has it all wrong. This is wondering when we read things like this, we have to ask the question, is God some sort of spoil sport, you know? You can't have any fun if you want to follow me. In fact, the qualification for being a Christian is misery. Certainly there are plenty of people in the world that have heard that before, that that's what Christianity is. Well, maybe it's a sort of condemnation of the world. The world is bad. All of these things of the world, and so we must withdraw from them. So the things of the world are bad, so to enjoy them, to laugh at them. This is sinful. You must change your way. And so we are very bewildered when we read passages like this. Sometimes we experience much of the pain that this scripture talks about, but not much of the blessing. Much of the deprivement, much of the sacrifice, you don't experience the rewards. When will we receive them, you may ask. Well, I want to suggest to you that this passage is at the core of the Christian faith. Like the Sermon on the Mount, this passage is not a formula. It's not a prescription. Rather, it's a description. It's not a, of your outward action how to behave, but rather of the inward disposition of your heart. It's not just of your heart, though your disposition towards God, but it's also about God's disposition toward you. It's really at the end of the day about a heart-to-heart -heart relationship. And so as Jesus preaches this sermon, there are three entities, three crowds who are there. Number one, Jesus, the Son of God. Number two, the disciples who he is speaking to. And finally, the crowd who is listening. Jesus is setting up two roads. 
One that leads to blessing and one that leads to cursing. One that leads to fullness and one that leads to emptiness. But one thing is clear, we only have one destiny. So Christianity continues to keep asking me, from me, all that I want, so it can give me all that I need. Christianity demands all that I have in order to receive all that he has for me. And so which crowd are you? Are you the disciples or are you everybody who's listening in? I want to take this passage and I want to examine it from three different ways. First, I want to show you that this passage is a description, not a prescription. A description, not a prescription. Number two, I want to show you that this passage is a diagnostic. Somewhat of a spiritual echocardiogram to examine your heart, to show you what is within your heart. It's a description. It's a diagnostic. And finally, number three, it's a denouncement. It's a warning. It's a denouncement for those who choose the destiny that leads away from Christ to the world. The bottom line, if you will remember one thing from this sermon, it's very simple. God's love can only be filled in an empty heart. Well, let's begin. Let's look at number one. It's a description, this passage, not a prescription. You know, there's something strangely attractive about this passage. Talked about it bewildering, but on the other hand, there's something attractive about it. Because it's very quantifiable, if you will. Blessed are you who is poor, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. If you weep now, you will laugh. And if men hate you, you will have a great reward. We see a real sort of cause and effect. If I do this, I receive this. It's very quantifiable. Reminds me a little bit of those billboards that you come across that say, what America needs is to return to the Ten Commandments. In other words, we have a formula or a program. If we simply follow this, we'll be fine. And so there are many Christians who have adopted this formula, right? To be poor, to be hungry, to be sad, to even plant the flag for Jesus. But there's something wrong about thinking about this passage in that way. Because when we look at the Ten Commandments, for instance, in the Old Covenant or I should say the Old Testament of God's covenant of grace, we see that the foundation was not, a rule, was not a list of do's and don'ts, but rather God's covenant love. Remember God who said in Deuteronomy 10, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the heavens, highest heavens, and the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all nations as it is today. And so the foundation was love. And the response that God wanted was love back. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. See, it's in the context of a love relationship that the people are, uh, are challenged, are encouraged, or even commanded to love God through obedience to His Word. 
Because obedience doesn't always lead to love. But love always leads to obedience. Ultimately, God's command to the Hebrews is, this is an issue of your heart. Circumcise your heart, Israel. No longer be stiff-necked. But you see, the Israelites somehow lost the heart of the law. Became not a question of internal heart, it became a question of effort. These rules and regulations became observances to be followed in order to have some sort of standing before God. It wasn't about relationship, it was all about rules. And God said, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is only made up of rules taught by men. You know, it's easy for us to play the same game with God as the Israelites, isn't it? From the beginning, Christianity shows the signs of this spiritual disease. Remember the monastic movement? Where people who wanted spiritual closeness to God said, all I have to do is go live in a cave. Or live in the top of a, of a, a pole or a pillar. Or to deprive myself, to not even wear clothes. Yes, I will get spiritually close to God by following to the letter this formula of have not so you can have. But Jesus is not giving a formula, is he? He chose these disciples. See, the way we evaluate other people in the Christian faith is simply this. How poor are they? How sad are they? How zealous are they? How hungry are they? They must be mature Christians, right? Because they've gone the extra mile. Maybe we even evaluate ourselves this way, right? I can't have too much fun. Better not be too blessed. Better not enjoy the fruits of this world too much. I have to keep score to make sure the balance doesn't get out of alignment. And many of us live with a Christian guilt. Something's missing. It's never enough. There's an uneasiness to our grace. But as I said, Jesus is not giving a formula. He chooses the disciples and he speaks to them. Notice verse 20, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This you is in the present tense. It's a condition, it's not an achievement. They really haven't done anything. And yet they're blessed. In fact, the only thing they have done that I can tell is they've said yes. And so he is describing them not exhorting them. I don't know if you've ever had this happen in your life when you get from the wife the honeydew list. It may be long and voluminous, much like Santa's list, continuing and rolling to the back of the building. But you've been putting off stuff, you've been hanging out in your hammock, and it's time to get some work done, darn it. And so your wife asks, will you be here this weekend? I really need you to help till the garden and plant the flowers and do these other things to which you realize that it is time to get back on the horse and you say yes I will dear I will be there with bells on and it is then later in the day that you get the call from your buddies 
hey, we've got three guys, but we need one more to fill out a foursome. Let's have a great round of golf. The weather is going to be fantastic. We are going to joy ourselves. You cannot miss it. And the man now is in a quagmire, isn't he? Honey-do list, golf with the buddies. And so he comes up with an equation, how he's going to pull this off. He gets home from work, and he brings in the beautiful bouquet of flowers that he purchased at significant expense, mind you. Darling, what are you doing tonight? Let's go out for dinner. Shay Moritz. Let's have pancreas. Let's enjoy one another. That was a little belated there. Stay with me, people. Let's have a fantastic dinner, candlelight dinner. And there as you stare into each other's eyes lovingly, you pull out the jewelry that you got for her, the lovely bracelet or bangle, and you give it to her. Explaining to her that someone so beautiful surely deserves something as beautiful as this. And then as you're heading home, satiated and satisfied, she feeling the connection to her husband, you very quietly say, Darling, there's something that's come up on Saturday, and it's not a big deal, but I'd like to play golf on Saturday. Would be okay to move the honeydew list to next Saturday? And it all comes crashing down. As the wife is not to be fooled by such treachery and utter trinkets and realizes that it's all been a lie. It's all been a setup in order to be able to play golf. See, she won't do it. And neither will God. Your righteousness is not advanced by an eternal, external system. It's not about your accomplishments. It's about the condition of your heart. And so, my friends, you cannot play the behavior game. Maybe you are the religious one. I can't have too much fun. I won't associate with bad people. I'll put in my time. I'll clean the floors. What's your formula? You know, we mix up our own cocktails, don't we? Blessed is the workaholic who provides for his family, for he will see the kingdom of God. Blessed is the totally together woman who works and is an exemplary mom and her house always looks fantastic for she will receive joy and be filled. Blessed is the blank. I don't know what it is that you want to fill in. But because you have missed the heart of the gospel, your life is dominated by guilt. And secretly, your Christianity is squeezing you to death. My friends, we do not control our Christianity. Our Christianity controls us. Until you give up on controlling your Christianity, there's no space for God to work in your life. You're too full. And God's love can only be filled in an empty heart. It's a description, not a prescription. Well, it's also, my second point, it's a diagnostic. Something has happened here in this choosing of the twelve. Now it says here in verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, this case in the Greek, it's called the vocative case. It's not used often at all. It's used when you have a direct address to someone. 
You're speaking to them. In fact, it's used often with great emotion. And so Jesus is looking at these 12. He's addressing them in the context of this big group. What do you think really happened when Jesus chose those 12? Wouldn't it be neat to be there and to see? I think Jesus did more than simply say, follow me. I mean, he's choosing 12. They are figuring this thing out, you know. I love that Jesus let people know what they were saying yes to. Remember the rich young ruler? He runs in, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus didn't do one of these things, did he? He said, here's what it's going to take. Go, sell everything, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Come follow me, but first let, the, let me bury my father. Jesus let people know what they were saying yes to. And so as he spoke to these twelve, maybe more specific than anyone else, he let them know what it meant to follow. And they all said yes. You know, this talk applies to anyone who follows the path of the disciples. Certainly not exclusive to them only. But we need to understand the context. That as Jesus speaks to them, he says, what you have done, disciples, the action that has followed, that has come out of your feeling, I want to explain to you who you are. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. See, you, disciples, you have become poor because you exchanged the riches of the world for me. You know, some of the disciples weren't that poor. Matthew, the tax collector, I'm sure he lived in a pretty nice house. What about John and James and Peter and Andrew, the, the uh, small businessmen, the fishermen? Right? They weren't laborers, they owned their own business. But every single one of them, Jesus had called them away from whatever it was they had to follow him. Why did they say yes? I think they realized that everything I have is not enough. It's not enough. You know, the truth of the matter, it is easier for the poor to enter the kingdom of God because they have less to give up. Remember Abraham who was called to go and survey the promised land. He got up and he went and he lived as a stranger in tents. And it says that the Bible said that he lived this way as an alien and stranger because he was looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. He gave, the disciples gave up all. Does that mean if we follow we must give up all? Absolutely. It means everything that you own is held in trust to be called at any time. The same call that was with the disciples is us. The question is, Will we respond? Don't kid yourself, my friends. It's easier for a rich man to go through the cam an eye that a camel through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to come into heaven. But he's not only talking about money that, that has a hold on us, and truth be told, many of our much of our money has a hold on us, and we don't have it on our money. He's talking about poor in spirit. Because the love of money reveals our heart. To be poor in spirit, to follow Christ, is to repudiate my independence, my pride, my selfishness, 
my kingdom that I've built to insulate myself from anyone, my Taj Mahal, or my two-by-two plot of ground in which I am the king. Why would you give that up? Same reason as the disciples. It's just not enough. What about this? Blessed are you disciples who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. You know, in the ancient Near East, they knew hunger. We don't really experience it in uh, the United States of America. Not to the degree they did. Many of them, they worked and got their wages that day, and those wages were used to buy food for the night. But we all have experienced the aching pain of hunger, haven't we? Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. He's speaking about a hungry heart. Bruce Springsteen, the great philosopher, was right. He's speaking about an emptiness of heart. Mother Teresa, who would know more than anyone working with the hungry and destitute, said, We think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty. You disciples have chosen to bring your hunger for love and acceptance to me. Truth is, you can't eat two things at one time, right? You were hungry and you chose me. See, Jesus is not calling the disciples to rewards. He's calling them to himself. These rewards are coming after. They didn't say yes to the rewards. They said yes to him. How about this one? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. It's an oxymoron, isn't it? Happy are the unhappy. What are we weeping for? I think we're weeping for our sin. We're weeping that we're not worthy of his love. We're weeping for the failures in our life. Isaiah 36 puts it this way. That there is an oracle within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate their sin. Do you ever love someone and then betray them? You ever love someone and continually betray them? There's no worse feeling than that. They love you unconditionally back. There's nothing worse than that. See, that's why they're weeping. The disciples have said, all that I can give you is me, and I'm a mess. And Jesus has said, you're enough. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Have you ever stood up for someone? Maybe as simple in the lunchroom, they were trashing someone. They're your friend, so you step up and you're in danger of losing your crowd. How about physically stepping in between a bully and the helpless? Why do you do it? Maybe because it's the right thing. Maybe sometimes it's because you love them. And I don't care what happens to me. Are you getting the big picture of what I'm talking about here? This is not about reward. It's about relationship. 
Jesus is telling them all the rewards now. See, there were no contract negotiations when he chose the twelve. Are you saying to me that if I get this, that at a certain point, this will occur? No, Jesus just said, I love you. Will you love me? They loved him. And they believed that he loved them too. And so this sermon at the end of the day is all about love. The love Christ has for his people and the love we have for him. And these things, mourning and tiredness and pain, they're all just facets of the same diamond. A heart that aches for God. Jesus rewards, doesn't he? But the beauty of it is we don't get stuff. We get him. And everything that proceeds from him. Right? Rejoice, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. How fun would the kingdom of heaven be without the king? The whole point is the king is there. Hungry, you will be satisfied. I am enough to fill your heart. Weeping, one day you will laugh. You'll no longer weep because of your sin and your fallenness. You will laugh because I have made you whole. You're hated, but you will receive the kingdom. Because instead of relying on the popularity of people, you will get me. And so the diagnostic for you, my friends, is who do I love? The diamond in my heart. Who do I love? You know, the beauty of this thing is that Christ did the same thing, didn't he? Though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. Though he was the one that rejoiced over the universe he created. He was a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. Although he was the sustainer of the universe, he put on flesh and he became hungry and tired and weak and sick. And though he deserved the praise of the world, he was hated by the very people that he made and sustained. Not long ago, I read a story about a couple. This comes from Brennan Manning's book. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Ragamuffin Gospel. And in it, he describes a rather solemn scene in the first person of a physician who's seen a young couple. It says this, this physician speaking, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of the mouth, had to be severed. She will be this way from now on. I have followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. The moment is a private one. Who are they, I ask myself? He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other so generously, so lovingly. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. 
I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is and I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold and in the counter with a God moment. Unmindful he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that her kiss, their kiss still works. See, this isn't about religion. It's about love. It's about intimacy and longing. Jesus comes and says, I love you. Will you follow me? And to be sure, I am clownish and grotesque. And yet God conforms his face and his love to make the kiss work. What's your Christianity about? Is it about do's and don'ts? Or is it about love? Is it about great rewards? Or is it about Him? So examine your life. Why did you choose Him? Why do you choose Him today? And get back to your heart. And love. Come back to the one who ransomed you. Have a private moment. Don't have it all together. Go on a walk. Cry with him. He doesn't love you for all you have. He loves you for who you are. And the one thing that you can give him that no one else can is your heart. God's love can only be filled in an empty heart. Well, he finishes his diagnostic with a denouncement. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your comfort. Woe to you who are full, you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when people speak well of you. See, who you embrace reveals whom you love. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The gospel is clear. God's love. Everyone can see that there is a God who is great and just. So that men are without excuse. But people even know that they, there is a God and saw him in his creation. Said, you're not enough. I like my things. It's enough. Because it's mine. And Jesus said, you've received your comfort. You've gotten the one that you wanted. And for the most part, people can live life feeling very comforted and contented. Maybe that's you or your neighbor. But then at the end, you see the lie that your life is empty. Maybe you're full now. There's no hunger, there's no emptiness, there's no longing. I mean, let's be honest, we live in the Great Neck area. This isn't a cheap place to live, isn't it? Is it? We're self-satisfied. We need nothing else. It's John Piper that said, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. It's enough. 
You know, I hope for you, if that's you, that you crash and burn early. Because it's then that you can finally realize that I'm hungry for something more. Blessed are those who laugh, for they will be sad and weep. Is he talking about laughter and enjoyment? No. He's talking about the laughter of fools, of madmen. As Ecclesiastes says, like the cracking of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. The result in the end of enjoying the madness of this world will be sadness. And finally, popularity. You know, this scripture says that you're loved by everyone. It is impossible to be loved by everyone unless you talk out of both sides of your mouth. You're all things to all people because you crave the popularity. And as to this Jesus, I don't know the man. Ultimately, you know what hell is? Hell is simply this, God saying, have it your way. Choose what you want, you have free will. See, they didn't choose him, they chose the world. And what does it profit the man who gains the world but loses his own soul. This passage is a description, it's a diagnostic, and it's a denouncement. The disciples made their choice. Every single one of them, as it says, except for maybe John, suffered tremendously and died for their faith. And I do believe that they were the most happiest and fulfilled men who ever lived. Because their empty hearts were filled with God's love. And so overflowed that the gospel spread. And here we stand. They chose him and they got all of him. They emptied their hearts and God filled them with love. And so you choose. Not behavior. Not rules and regulations. But a savior who died for you. Die for him that you might experience new life and a new relationship of love, intimacy, and wholeness for eternity. May this be your plight in life. Let's pray. Jesus, you're amazing. What love is this? That you would come and become so disfigured that you could reach out and touch us who are so disfigured and make us beautiful. Lord, help us not to be taken by the trinkets of this world, the mirages, the facades that look, try to look like you, but are so far, so foolish. Lord, let us be the disciples. Let us sign up for you. Forget the rewards. If we get you, we get everything. So Lord, let the decision to follow you today be a decision of our hearts, not just our minds. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.